Hello, this is Glumpuddle, and this is Movie Aristotle, and we are watching The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which first hit theaters in December of 2010. If you want to join us, you can synchronize this audio commentary track with your copy of the movie at home, whether that be a DVD, Blu-ray, or digital file. So we are both huge fans of this book, and throughout this commentary, we are going to be largely focusing on the adaptation from book to film. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is actually my favorite book ever and had a big impact on my life. So it was really important to me that the movie uh, be good and treat the source material with respect. And uh, I'm a big Narnia fan as well. And Voyage of the Dawn Treader is certainly near the top of my favorites list. So this was fun anticipating this movie and it's going to be fun doing a commentary on it. 10 years later. Yep. So here's our opening logo. Probably the first thing to say about this opening of the movie, emphasizing the World War II setting, which all three Walden movies to varying degrees have kind of reminded you about the historical context where the books kind of largely forget about it after Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I would say. that's very true. Mm -hmm. And also the other two movies started out uh, with their... their, Opening credits. Opening credits, whereas this just jumps straight into the movie, so just an indication of uh, the change in the directors and that style. Yeah, the, obviously Andrew Adamson directed the first two, and now here we are with Michael Apted. And yeah, the fact that we jump right into it without a lot of buildup, it, it's definitely a clue of things to come. Better luck next time, eh, Squirt? <laughs> All this is added from the book. The opening of the book is one of my favorite openings to a book ever. There was a boy <laughs> called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. They did manage to squeeze in a, a wink at it here. Edmund says something like, oh, Eustace Scrub, if anyone deserves, if anyone so deserves a name or something like that. So they've got at least a wink at it here. Yep. And so now they're starting in with Lucy's story arc, which... Is uh, is an idea that's expounded upon uh, from the book, where she's looking at the magician's book and she's uh, uh, wants to wants to say the spell about beauty beyond the lot of mortals. They took mm-hmm. that and expanded that, and which we, we had a pretty good idea before the movie came out. That's the direction they were going with Lucy's character. They were going to expand on that. And now this movie moves really quickly, it and does. we're introduced <laughs> to Eustace Clarence Scrub. and called a movie for nothing. And his his beetle collection, although those beetles are live, and in the book he likes them dead and pinned on a card. True. I, I, I think it's some decent character development there, just visually showing what his room is like. You can probably kind of tell he doesn't have much of a social life. He spent, now, look, if you're listening and you spend a lot of time playing with beetles and you have a social life, I'm sorry. Uh, but here, yeah, I think panning down to him under the bed, I think you get a pretty good indication that he doesn't have a lot of friends like the book talks about. And, of course, they're establishing Eustace's journal there, and he sticks it in his sock a weird place to put it but it explains why it ended up in narnia excuse me not narnia they don't go to narnia in this movie they go to narnia movie. the world even though it's if it's not narnia, it's a little country it, it's a little vague the lone islands are narnian that's true so they get a letter from susan <laughs> and so a papa Willis cameo here exactly i think this was a nice use of her cameo to explain where she lamppost there is. she's got a like a lamppost bookend or something oh, there yeah uh-huh and uh, yeah, just a, I think it was it was a very appropriate use of her character in this film because, of course, in the book she doesn't really appear in the in the story itself. Right, and here I guess since Lucy, part of Lucy's story is wanting to be like Susan, you know, so it makes sense to have her actually appear there. Um, a lot of this is a 
pretty much from the book. Even this bedroom is a lot how I pictured it. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe it's because it looks so much like the BBC version. I don't know. But what about the painting itself? What do you think of the painting? Is that th- how you imagined it? I think pretty much, actually. I think the, the, the Dawn Treader ship as well, too, is very similar to, maybe a little more ornate, but very similar to how I imagined it. Seen the ship before? Yes. It's very Narnian looking, isn't it? It is very Narnian looking. Mm-hmm. Very I- iconic scene from the book here, of course. Well, although it's very far away. I think in my imagination, the book was, that, that's or the, a good the uh, ship was a bit closer. Well, because they have to make it, they have to give it room to move towards you, I guess, is that's the true. idea. Um, so yeah, this fell feel is very similar from the book. A lot of this dialogue here. Uh, mm-hmm. Will Poulter, obviously one of the most anticipated casting announcements of as soon as you hear they're going to make the Chronicles of Narnia into movies and you start thinking ahead a little bit, it's, well, who's going to, you know, one of the things is, well, who's going to play Eustace? Mm-hmm. And I think I remember everybody being really, I don't remember hearing a bad word when Eustace was cast, which was while they were filming Prince Caspian is actually when we heard that he'd been cast. Everybody oh. was really excited about that. So some rapid-fire character development here with Eustace. <laughs> Which works pretty well. I mean, it, you get this idea that there's this confrontation between him and Edmund. and mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you feel overall about this transition coming up, the picture in the bedroom? Which is a little different than the way it's described in the book, where it's like either the picture grows or they shrink. There's a comical bit in the book where it's like yeah. Eustace is actually standing on the frame at uh, one point. Yeah, it's, to me... Well, I suppose it fits in the same, you know, I guess it's in the same style as the uh-huh. as the transition in Prince Caspian, but uh-huh. you know, personally, uh, I I don't it works. It doesn't it doesn't work so well Love for that me. Bit there where you pick, take the picture that off of nice the wall. Bit. That's it's pretty cool. That is a nice bit. But I would I would have preferred to see them go into the picture in to sort of um Well, maybe they, they might. Maybe go, maybe they, maybe they get sucked into it here. In, in yeah, here it could. looks more like the world is engulfing the world of Narnia is engulfing right their world rather than them going through a doorway in the picture frame i guess kind of how i, I, I guess I thought I, of it. yeah i guess there's less of a feeling of oh the picture in the bedroom is one of the chinks and chasms mm-hmm. and more like well just something magical happened exactly and so that's that's my main cool. objection to it but it is cool but it it's is really cool. cool especially again when you ticks the picture off of the wall and the water's still coming out i think that's pretty neat mm-hmm and the effects, I think, work very well, which is such a contrast to this scene, I think, where the effects aren't very good, uh, especially when the, the guys jump off the ship here and they, and they mega exaggerate the motion blur to disguise how CGI they are right there. I guess I never really picked up on that before. Yeah. But what bugs me is coming up, now Caspian grabs Lucy, her, and then she turns around, and then she turns around again. So ah, it's like okay. uh, that that little editing bit that that gets me. But it's See, it's forgivable for me. The nitpick there is that uh, so, I think someone Edmund or Lucy says, "Are we in Narnia?" And someone replies, "Yes, you're in Narnia." I just remember thinking, "Not no, they're not." Unless they've changed the story and they just left Narnia like minutes ago or something. It's a nitpick. I know it's no. like a little ambiguous of Narnia being the phrase we use for the whole world and also yeah. the country of Narnia. But you know what? It is that way in the book, though, you would think, because when Aslan they don't creates really firmly, Narnia... That's true. Well, presumably they're actually in Narnia there when he does that, and then he makes other countries too. But, but later in the movie, they do mention their... They talk about their travel so far, so they certainly didn't just leave but the it was country st- of Narnia. Okay. Uh, Let it go. On the ship, here we are. Uh-huh. Everything's happy. 
Uh-huh. And there's this, why are we here? Why are we here? It's a good Which question. Which isn't really questioned in the book at all. Oh, and here comes, see, one of my most anticipated moments of the Don Treader move, or one of my favorite moments in the book is Reaper Cheap's introduction, or I mean his reintroduction. Obviously, he was in Prince Caspian. But it's such a beautiful piece of writing paired with Pauline Baines's great illustration where it's, you might call it, and indeed it was, a mouse. And it's just wonderfully elegant buildup. And you realize, it's Reaper Cheap from the other book. He's, he's in this book? Awesome. And it's this wonderfully elegant introduction for the character. And here, the first time we see him, he's like flip-flopping across the deck into frame. <laughs> and Which tells you about the direction they've taken Reaper Cheap's character as being a lot more comedic and kind of sarcastic in side comments than he is in the book. Uh, Will Poulter is holding nothing back. <laughs> which I appreciate. I do like the interaction between... Uh, Lucy and Edmund there, and and every, everyone seems to be interacting. Basically, minotaurs. how I would, basically how I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So there are minotaurs on the Dawn Treader. I they remember that indeed. being a co- a controversy yeah. back when they were filming the uh, yeah. movie. For, for, yeah, we obviously in set photos we saw that there were minotaurs. There's a fawn somewhere. Um, and oh, by the way, uh, Caspian here says High King and Queen of Narnia, and that's another controversy. That's not. Accurate. I, I I don't think of Edmund as being the High King just because he's just because Peter is not around anymore. But yeah, Minotaurs are on here, which in my mind, I guess the, my concern was it should feel like here's a cool shot. Uh, it should feel like a, a pretty normal crew sailing into fantastical lands, and I worry that having the crew be more fantastical would water that down a little bit. Um, so that but, was kind of my concern. But the Minotaurs it. were so huge in the previous films, and so there was there was big, almost no not to way big, huge. Well. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, they won Academy Awards for the makeup uh, uh-huh. for the creature effects and whatnot. So uh, it was a good, you know, I I, I think it was uh, inevitable that they would do something like that. Yeah. And it works for this film. There's a lot of details in this room. If you pause, um, there's somewhere in here it says, um, like, once a king or queen, always a king or queen. And then there's another part where it says, uh, like, if ever they remember their lives in our world, it was only as one remembers a dream or something like that, which is a bit from Line of the Witch and the Wardrobe, which I question. That just seems a little weird to me somehow. I don't know why. It just does. I guess I appreciate what they're trying to do. I was saying, well, they're like Caspian's fairy tales. So he's got, it's almost as if the stories actually exist. But there's something about that I find a little hokey. I do love the design of this room, though. I think and it's I think too this ornate. Is, and this is an excellent reintroduction to the flashlight. I don't quite buy that he would bring the torch along with him. It, I, it's enough of a stretch that he would bring the gifts, which I know is in the book. Um, but, well, that's kind of what I think of. I think of it as a royal treasure at this point. And, it's, and to them, it's just it's as magical. It's an amazing piece of technology. It's just as magical to them as, Light comes up. Oh, as a, you know, anything else that Here's the reference to Suspian. Ah, why couldn't they just forget that that existed? That would have been the right thing to do. When he says something like, no, none to compare with your sister. Well, my brother well, and I again, went, they're bringing up this rivalry between Lucy right. and Susan. She, 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 she's a bit crestfallen there. I still can't forgive it. I'm sorry. But we've got some nice drawings of the mm-hmm. Lords of Telmar. And Ben Barnes, I like his performance here. Uh, yes. He's, uh, he's, you can see he seems to have this sense of genuine concern about the Lords. And um, we were concerned about, which is, which is in fact a problem in the movie, but we knew early on that they were amping up the stakes and making it less about the Lords and more about some kind of world-saving plot. And so, but here, Caspian, it's very, so we were worried about, well, what about Caspian's sense of honor and responsibility to find the Lords? Mm-hmm. Is that watered down? And here, at least in this scene, you definitely seem to have it. Caspian seems mm-hmm. genuinely concerned and 
well, you know, they, they fled the Lone Islands, which is a change from the book as well. The reason the Lords are gone is different. And, mm-hmm. uh, yep. Um, but I, I appreciate Caspian's genuine concern and desire to write what was wronged. Um, but yeah, the reason the Lords are gone in the book is Miraz just sent them to go explore other lands. And as he expected, they never came back. And here in the movie, um, it's just they fled to the Lone Islands because they were en- uh, enemies or political rivals of Miraz, which I think is a little more plausible, actually, that that it makes sense they wouldn't come back after that. The Mira is just hoping they wouldn't come back. Hmm. And then in that scene where they kind of, in the book, when they establish um, the purpose of the voyage, which is twofold, you know, it's to find the Lords and the hope of getting to Aslan's country. That's all part of the same scene. And here they've taken that and made it more of an intimate moment between uh, Lucy and Ripichip. Mm-hmm. Which that line, you know, do you really believe there is such a place? It seems a bit odd, but I love this reaction here where she's, well, do you, do you think you could actually sail there? I mean, that that uh-huh. realization of, oh, well, wow. I suppose it could be real, yeah. So that, I, you know, I like that little moment. And I like this moment coming up, too. And uh, this is a great point to mention the score. I think I think uh, Arnold did a very good job with mm. with his score. I think... Uh, it's a, a bit magical. It's a bit... Yeah, a, which is a difference between, I, I think, Adamson's Narnia, the magic is just sort of incidental to the world for the most part. And here, Apted spends a lot of time like, look at how magical this is. You know, like using... They, he uses chimes quite a bit in this film the, the, the to slow, emphasize the, the magic. The slow motion as well. He yeah. uses um, uh, sleigh bells outright. I don't know if right. they're... If, are there any sleigh bells in the wardrobe soundtrack? I don't think so. But there are sleigh bells in this one when it snows later on. Mm-hmm. I remember we saw uh, footage of them fighting here in the spy uh, spy videos when they were filming. We were freaked out. Like, well, we had Peter fighting Caspian in the first <laughs> one, and now why are they fighting? Oh, but I love this. And I love the score here, too, by the way. This mm-hmm. this this bit of music is great. Mm-hmm. So I do I do like this little, uh, little uh, sword fight for fun. Uh, little did we know they're setting up a rivalry between the two. Well, but they, they have at this point it's they fun. have to establish we have to see them be friends because honestly it's a little weird seeing them be so happy to see each other because did they talk at all in the Prince Caspian movie? Um, like you don't really get the sense they formed much of a relationship in the Prince Caspian movie. So I think that's probably why they have that scene there. Hmm. Right here when Lucy's like, "What do we just tip off the edge?" Mm-hmm. But that's all we get of the the concept that maybe the world isn't round. I would think if you hadn't read the book, you'd be like. No, you idiot. The world's round <laughs> because they don't take the time to kind of develop it like they do in the book. That's a good, uh, I suppose that's a good point, but it is a nod to the book where that conversation is, which is, you know, a, one of the cool parts of the book. The most interesting parts is a little Easter egg. If you, you'll catch, if you're a fan, which, which they do that a com- lot, quite common. They do that a lot in this film, but I appreciate yeah. the nods, even if they don't go into the full conversation. Speaking of a nod, I feel like Reapy Cheeps going back to the conversation with him and Georgie. I feel like, his a, a desire to see the world's end in Aslan's country feels like a bit of an afterthought in the movie, whereas in the book, that that's the real heart of the book. Even though the Seven Lords is sort of the MacGuffin that drives the plot forward, it's really about getting to Aslan's country. And Reepicheep has had this, my whole life I've wanted this, and you feel that in the book. And here it's sort of a, he's really they're really not going to talk about Aslan's country at all, I don't think, until we get to the end of the movie, except maybe briefly. So here are the Lone Islands. Finally at our first island. How far into the movie are we? Uh, Let me pull up my display here. Thir- 15 minutes into the movie. We're at our first island. And this is where the movie starts to go wrong. I think up until up until this point, I think the book the movies followed the book pretty well. It's all right. And 
and here is where we start to rivalry diverge directly from you know to, to from what the book is so right like direct contradictions to the story and, and it's with the conf starting with the conflict here between edmund and caspian which is never a thing in either book a Ca prince caspian or don treader there's never really that power struggle and in both caspian and don treader except on Deathwater De Island. Deathwater, yeah. Which is sort of how you know, oh, things are going wrong, because it's such an exception. I will say I appreciate here at the Lone Islands there is some attempt at suspense and atmosphere. It's not much, but it's such a contrast from the rest of the movie. Like when they walk, they're looking around, they don't see anybody. It seems like there's no one here. And where are they? Um, it, there's a little bit of taking time to build suspense here, which really doesn't hardly, it hardly ever happens anywhere else in the movie. Hmm, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. I will say it's very different from, oh, you know, I would love to walk across Felimath, yeah. you know, and, you and, know, just having a, a nice little walk and then running into some slavers. And yeah, I guess the, the, the counterpoint to them building suspense here is it seems like there is some reason to believe that maybe something, something fishy is going on. Mm -hmm. So it's weird that Caspian would be like, you know, King Edmund, Queen Lucy, come with me. Everyone else, hang behind, and, and just you, you send a search party if we if we don't come back. <laughs> Whereas in the move in the book, first off, Lewis admits, well, maybe that if Caspian had been a, an old had been king longer, maybe he would not would not have done this. But even in the book, but there's no there's no reason to believe there's any big threat at the Lone Islands at least. So it's not a totally dumb decision. Whereas here, you're like Caspian, what are you doing? And like here, Eustace, what a dodo. He's just gonna now let's just get out of here. And this is a this is a funny moment here with the knife. I yes. Think. I do like this. I think ben Barnes does a really good but Ben Barnes is more probably he might be the best performance in the movie, in my opinion. Um, because he's not he just does a lot with uh not a whole lot, and I'll just say that. But this is great. That this uh this beat here where uh, Ben kind of pauses just like here you go, okay. <laughs> And Eustace being overconfident. Right. I'm sort of like a little curious about, I don't, it seems a little out of character for Eustace to be trying to be so helpful here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Although overconfidence is probably not the right word. Trying to look confident is yeah. what he's up to. We're now, trying to appear helpful. Which, by the way, why did they bring Eustace at all? It's dumb enough to just bring the kings and queens <laughs> and nobody else. But why would, what, what, what's Eustace going to do? I don't know. Well, I mean, the town looks deserted, so. Or city, I should say. So, so here's some decent spooky atmosphere. That, that mm -hmm. If they need to do it about a minute longer for the pirate guys jumping down to have a real impact, it happens so fast. But at least we get a few seconds of the spookiness and eeriness. It'd be even spookier if they weren't narrating exactly what they were thinking. Look, wh wh why are the names crossed out? Oh, I wonder, wonder what that means. A couple brief shots of Lucy sword fighting here is kind of fun. Yeah. But she does do some sword fighting, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. And the sword fight stops. Mm-hmm. And we meet... And, and, and right villain away... Villain number one. <laughs> uh, and right away, we're diverging from uh, the book, just the way that action scene was amped up. Um, and we're going to see in a moment here... The book is all about defeating bureaucracy <laughs> and like and like the fact that uh, they never have to uh, 
Caspian saves the Lone Islands and abolishes the slave trade mm-hmm. without using a sword once. He's mm-hmm. uh, he's smart about it. He's a genius about it. And we're going to do the completely the opposite in uh, the movie here, where Caspian very unwisely brings only the kings and queens with him on this island and is just going to beat them on the head with swords, and that's how he wins. And then, they, of course, they meet Lord Byrne in the book just as Gumpus is taking the as taking them to um to the slave market or whatever. Not Gumpus. Oh, not Gumpus. You're right. Sorry. Um, blanking on the name. The slaver. The slaver guy. Sorry. Look that up in the book. Pug. Pug. Thank you. We know what we're talking about. We're not just doing a commentary because we're whatever reason we would be doing a commentary if we didn't love this. Uh, Lord Byrne. Uh, yeah, so they meet Lord Byrne just kind of as Pug is on his way uh, to the slave, slaver area. And then Byrne purchases Caspian because he looks like um, Caspian's father. And here they have Byrne in prison. I guess it's never explained why Byrne is imprisoned here, is it? It's never really explained why anybody on the Lone Islands are acting the way they are. <laughs> I mean, they're they're afraid of these right. of these slavers. But, you know, it's 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 never even really explained in this movie whether these slavers are are they pirates that just you know that just happen to land on the lone islands uh-huh. you know is is gumpus actually the governor or is he just uh-huh. another pirate they don't go into that in this film they don't go into much in this movie do they <laughs> but uh, it oh, seems like they've go. taken control at least because they have regular sacrifices right which in the leaked script was a soul-eating cave of doom here we just have the green smoke monster this is all added from the book this is a I guess they, they have to get someone fed to the mist that we know and care about. So we'll introduce the MLG, this mysterious little girl we kept seeing in uh, set videos, wondering who the heck she was. And we're going to introduce the green mist here. When we were uh, during the marketing of the movie, at some point there was a synopsis that was released that said something like uh, Caspian having to save uh, the world from an unfathomable fate. And I imagine we were getting, we finally got more details about what that was in the trailer with the seven swords and stuff. I remember Rillian saying, well, they sure named it correctly because I could never have fathomed this. <laughs> oh, boy. And um, to be fair, this looks pretty good in 3D. But if you're watching it in 2D, <laughs> it doesn't really, doesn't really improve the situation much. Right. The Green Mist was actually Doug Gresham's suggestion or at least the concept of having a green mist. He mentioned it, though he was old. He didn't have anything to do with the development of that idea and ultimately said he was, quote, horrified when he saw the finished product. Hmm. Yeah, there's not much uh, explained about the green mist or why it is uh, doing what it's doing. Maybe you could say it seems to have some kind of personality, but completely added from the book. It has some attempt at a villain that we have to defeat um, it's part of what makes the book unique, I think, is it doesn't really have any kind of villain they're trying to defeat. It's about honor and adventure and exploration. One could presume, though, if, if you've read the books, one could presume that it has something to do with the Lady of the Green Kirtle, especially Doug since... Doug cameo right there? There he is. But especially since in uh, oh, yeah, that was early concept art... they were art, going with it, yeah, Early absolutely. concept art, I think they were going with the Lady of the Green Kirtle being the villain of this movie, Connect, so... Connect, connecting, and yeah, trying to... Remember, there's another great Michael Apted quote where he said they were drawing on the book that C.S. Lewis didn't write. So that makes me think <laughs> that maybe if we had gotten uh, Narnia 4 from Walden absolutely. and they did the Silver oh, Chair, then they maybe would have explained this a bit more. So I'll give them the, the benefit of the doubt in that regard uh-huh. for the moment. Right. 
Or is it in, in the league script, a very early version of this? I like this, where he talks about winning the school the hygiene, hygiene award. award. He's, he's trying. <laughs> he's, uh, they're underselling me. <laughs> um, but yeah, the early version, a very early version of this. Uh, there was the soul-eating cave of doom, where the Lady of the Green Kirtle was collecting souls to turn into an army, which they ultimately didn't go with that. Yeah, this whole... I remember having my head in my hands watching this for the first time because it's so completely the opposite of what makes the book so exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's almost like... Yeah, maybe it makes it more cinematic, but nah. I think... I think... Just, just more commercial. It's it, it's just... The, the, the book is so clever in how exactly. they win the Lone Islands without they totally a single fight. They fake them out completely. And, you know, and, and, and not even that, you know... Caspian doesn't have a right to rule the Lone Islands. I mean, he is the sovereign here uh-huh. in both book and film, but you know, it's just in the book, it's just so clever on how he retakes control of the Lone Islands. And, and here, so it's much, just a fight scene. So much wonderful dialogue, so much kind of so much dry comedy, and then the book. Um, and <laughs> I, I wonder, it may be as much about wanting to get some cool stuff for trailers as well. This is just a much quicker way to. Uh, to, to solve the problem so we can move on, which the movie is only like an hour and 45 minutes. So why can't it be like another 20 or 30 well, minutes longer? Well, that's just it. It's it, the the first two Walden films took their time. And I think Mostly, that's yeah. a, a fault of this one is that it just moves so quickly. It's just plot point, plot point, plot point, And we need some character moments. Mm-hmm. Why does now this is Pug, right? No, the, 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 this is Gumpus. This is Gumpus, sorry. Um, so why is he so interested in picking off Eustace here. I think he just wants the boat. Because he wants to escape or what? I think so. I think he doesn't have a boat anywhere else? Well, you know... Look at these magical devices called boats! Have a better boat. I want one! This is, a, I guess, maybe a slight nod to the scene in the book where Caspian is walking through the town and people are cheering, but that's about all you get. Um... I'm I'm skeptical. This is a, a big addition from the book here. I'm skeptical that Caspian would take Rince along because you know, this is Rince, by the way. Um, it, the Caspian would bother to take Rince along here. A little dialogue here. No, no, stay, no, Gail, stay with your aunt. So they know that uh, we're, she's not being abandoned here. Mm, that's I suppose that's nice. And her aunt looks very caring. <laughs> So uh, here we look, go. A sword. The swords. Uh, I think there's a bit. There's a lot of ADR here. I think they probably added in post, uh, where uh, they say that the seven swords were gifts from Aslan, or and he says, "Oh yeah, it's from your golden age." The seven swords, uh, gifts from Aslan to protect Narnia, which I think they added later. It's a little bit in there. Squeeze it in there so that technically speaking, hey fans, be quiet. They're from Aslan or whatever. Okay, <laughs> like we're not having the kids be the heroes here. You see, they're from Aslan, but. They're they're throwing it in there to squeeze it in, and then they're going to totally forget about that for the rest of the movie. Well, I don't I don't uh, know if I agree as far as the reasoning, but I'll say that it doesn't make much sense that that these are swords from Aslan, and they seem to have a purpose. But now the the lords have them, but only only six of the lords went on the journey, and so the the. The story here doesn't quite make sense as far as the seven yeah. swords are concerned, but but you know what? To be fair, I mean, you know that Lewis leaves a lot of things unexplained in his books, and sure, that's what sure. we appreciate about. But this is his something books. I think you need more explanation for, since it's such a central part of the story, and it's such a wait. He handed swords and said, "Here, guys, this'll 
help you out at some point. If you put them together, it'll shoot a blue light in the sky and it'll destroy a thing. <laughs> it, it, it needs more. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose. But it, at least one of the things that we appreciate about uh, Lewis's books is sure. uh, is the fact that he leaves some. To th- but he's smart about when to do that. I think, uh, and he makes them that's intri- true. He makes them intriguing and interesting instead of confusing. So Eustace is his journal. Is got a journal, or at least mm-hmm. so thinking a- about his surroundings, which I think this is very in tune with the book when we're reading his journal I agree. entries. It, it's used for a, a similar purpose, actually. If, if it gives us a peek inside his head, which is very important. Yeah, he is writing. And um, it also um, kind of helps tie together kind of the uneventful parts of the voyage. So I think this was, the the, the journal was something I'd been saying, oh, I don't think that's going to be able to work in the movie. And I was wrong. It actually works very well. I think this is pretty funny. This is, I like those two. The idea is funny anyway. I like the the interaction between these two here. See, I like the interaction between Eustace and the seagull. Those two. <laughs> these guys, I think, is not the best acting. And I think it, I feel, I, I feel like I got the joke without having them to hammer it home with, he's talking to a bird. Well, at least it's a character moment for these, you know. That's true. Actors who are in the background are, are, and don't there, have too many lines. pretty generic sailors who look like they all just got back from the dry cleaners with, with their outfits. So here's a scene. Um, this has been really completely reimagined from the book, the whole, you know, Eustace and Repacheep's uh, conflict. Because in the book... Of course, what Eustace do- number one, what Eustace does is premeditated, and it's even worse. He grabs his tail and swings him around by it. Here, uh, how the tail ends up in Eustace's hand is a little unclear. It seems like it's more instinctive. He just sort of grabs it as Repetit flicks it around. So it's actually an accident. It's, so it's not nearly as evil as what it is in the book. And also, Repetit's reaction here just seems like he's just kind of toying with him. Whereas in the book, so offended, he wants a legit duel right there. And it's this piece of Narnia culture, this line that Eustace mm. has crossed so hard. So it it they've taken something that is um, a really horrible thing that Eustace has done, and, uh, and Repetit is infuriated by, and they've made it more of a scene for comedy, where it doesn't really seem like there's a lot on the line. Well, now, remember, also in the book, uh, Repetit and Eustace have a confrontation over the water. Eustace is going to steal some water. Right, yeah, that, that's and later so this in the story, is yeah. this is kind of a mixing of those two scenes. He's uh-huh. stealing an orange, and uh, he he grabs uh-huh. Reap's tail, and uh, a fight ensues. But it is a nice character moment between these two. There aren't a lot of character moments in this movie, but you do get to feel like there's a relationship building between these two and that Reepicheep is being the the gracious one in this circumstance. As a movie, maybe there's, yeah, it's such a contrast from the rest of the movie. I guess it is a bit of a relief to see some, like, genuine human interaction and developing relationships because there's not a lot of that. Or human-mouse interaction. Yeah, but it's, uh, but it, overall, Reep, as of an adaptation coming into this and Reepicheep is the heart of the book and he is... Not a, we do not describe him as a comedic character. The the concept of Reepicheep is maybe inherently a bit comedic. This tiny little mouse who's so brave and talking so big all the time. But Reepicheep takes himself completely seriously, and Lewis takes him seriously, and he's the emotional heart of the book. And so often they just play him for laughs. And I think the relationship in the book is so much stronger when they, mm. Reepicheep has this genuine hatred and disbelief about this boy. And then he comforts him when he's a dragon. I think that's more powerful here when you feel like Reaper Chief is always trying to kind of reach 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 out to Eustace a little bit. So we have a stowaway. 
yeah, somehow got on board the Dawn Treader. So not the best security, I guess. But, but nice yeah. moment of tension here, though, because Gary Sweet does a nice job as Journey in here. I, I he does, and I I like this. You know, oh, what's going to happen? And mm-hmm. he's gracious and mm-hmm. uh, and understands. Yeah, and so is Lucy, very gracious as well. I should probably explain the term MLG if I accidentally call her that. So we we were seeing Gail in set videos. They filmed this in Australia. There was not a lot they could do to hide the set. Um, and we just kept seeing this girl, we're like, who is this character? And eventually we, 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 we nicknamed her the MLG. Um, there was, the, there was this moment of comedy where, well, I'll go into that at the end, where we actually thought she was a boy at some point. I'll get, I'll get to that at the end and explain why. So we called her the MLG. So mysterious little girl or mysterious little Gale, either one. Dissolve in next island. Ah, that's kind of pretty. Mm-hmm. And Caspian's going to look through... What do you call that? It's not a telescope. It's a, it's a thing. A, a sextant? Is that what that is? The thing you look through? Whatever. He looks through that, and he's just well, like, oh, it looks okay. uninhabited. I would have said it was a telescope, but... Oh, really? Okay. We'll go, we'll go with you then. Um, I've, never, I've never been a sailor, though, so... Okay. I, whereas I'm, I'm a total expert, so we're going to go with my opinion. <laughs> so they've now they've started juggling the order of the islands That's here. right, because Dragon Island is the first island in the book. Well, first after the Lone Islands. After, after the Lone Islands, yes. Because after the Lone Islands, the adventure really begins. It really begins. And here, we're going to the Island of the Magician, or the Island of the Duffers, or uh-huh. whatever you want to call it. And uh, Whereas in the book, Caspian wisely sleeps on the shore. Uh, I'm not sure if it's this island. But book, book Caspian, he, he, movie Caspian takes one glance at the island from one side of it and says, well, it looks uninhabited. Whereas Book Caspian would have been smart enough to sleep on the shore and and go 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 ashore after dark or after they search the place and and they don't even post a watch apparently because Queen Lucy gets carried off right under their noses. Sorry, I'll stop. But there is a bit of of nice dialogue there, of the uh, invisible people deciding who they're going to kidnap. Mm-hmm. This one. Now, what do you think of the garden here? Is this anything like you imagined no, from the book? It, it, Me it, neither. Th- this looks like this is a Tim Burton movie now. It does um, look like Wonderland to me, rather than or Edward, Edward Scissorhands is what I always think about. Um, but it's uh, in the book. The most startling thing about this island is how normal it looks. It's like well, it looks like the grass is mowed, and there's a very kind of English-looking house, and it's like it's this super incongruous island of in the middle of these unknown, uncharted lands. A very normal-looking island. It's this weird effect, and here they've gone the opposite way and, and made the whole thing look very fantasy, or or or, or look like a set rather. It's distinctive, though. Mm-hmm. I like the breath. A breath is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I remember being worried. Well, wait a second. Well, I suppose so. You could see that there's somebody talking, but they're yeah. invisible. Uh huh. Well, I just think it, I think it's a fun idea. Yeah, and it doesn't give away what they are. And I like this moment. Georgie does a nice job here. Of they do a nice job of. Um, I was worried when we were getting details about this scene before it came out that Lucy's sense of honor would be lost because ultimately what she does in the book is, as as Reepicheep calls it, a brave and heroic act um, where uh, the Duffelbuds explain the situation to her and, well, we're all going to kill you if if Lucy doesn't do this. And they preserve that here when the the only reason she's doing this is to save her friends, although they make the, the mansion invisible as well, which is not in the book, um, which, again, I feel is... The fact that it's all just kind of normal in the book is what's so special about this, and what's so what's so incongruous. And here they really they really amp up the magic. 
Now you've got me thinking about the breath, because generally I don't like CG breath. Oh, I mean, I, I don't think the effect looks very good, but I think it's a good idea. <laughs> well, how cold is it there? That's true. I mean, it would have to be pretty cold in order to see breath. They, they were, they, they, I didn't see any blankets or anything, so they must have been really, really cold. I don't know. And the oppressor. The oppressor. The oppressor. They don't even say he's a magician. The Duffelpud's dialogue's all right. Pretty in tune with the book. I'm not exactly sure I like the term oppressor, though. Well, it's because they don't have any time to set up the concept of the magician, whereas in the book it's so spooky. Maybe he'll be dead. Maybe he'll be invisible. They don't know what happened to him, whereas in the movie they literally got one moment to establish that there's someone in there so they have to use the word oppressor so you'll go oh it might be someone bad i guess which again why couldn't they have taken a little bit more time movie's only like an hour and 45 minutes have if, i mentioned that if yet that <laughs> i mean it is it, it could be longer they could take uh-huh. a, a little bit longer uh-huh here they are realizing why didn't we post a watch we're idiots There's great stuff. There's great. Now, look, I don't blame them for cutting this stuff out, but there is such great stuff in the book of the, the, like the dinner with the duffel puds when they feed them and the plates are jumping around and stuff. And there's so much wonderful stuff and so much build up. We, we have mm. so much time in the book to imagine what might be up there. Will it be the in, in the Lucy going down the hallway and the weird images and um, looking around for the magician or a dead body or whatever? It's so spooky and built up. And they do have, compared to the rest of the movie, there's some of that here. I mean, just even just her echoey footsteps walking down the hall, it's something. At least we get a few seconds of it here. But it, it's not as much as I, I personally would like, especially in a book. Don Treader... All the Narnia books are, but Don Treader in particular is so much about atmosphere. Well, I was uh, just about to say, I think the atmosphere of of just about every island is, is wrong mm-hmm. in this movie. It's not like the mm-hmm. book, uh, not like the book. But speaking of books, we have the Magician's book, yeah, which I think is rather nice as far as an adaptation goes. It's very ornate. Um, I think it works. It's all right, and I think again, I think if the house felt more normal uh what if here's an idea what if this house looked like a modern house i'm talking like from the 2000s cue the sleigh bells yeah or or cue the commercials because this is being released around christmas time Um, why would uh what do you mean about around the 2000s why would you want a modern house because that would be magical like it's from a completely different time that doesn't belong um i just an idea to make it look normal but have this magical i can't tell there's just something a little out of place about it but Whatever, no time to go into that here. That's a, Sorry. Bit, that's a bit of a stretch in my opinion. Either way, does not look so fantastical. Ooh. Oh, uh, that's I, odd. I, I guess someone's being tempted now. I would this... not have I would not have known that, but there's green smoke on the screen, so I guess there's temptation about to occur. Well, this is the this is the first tempting, so so there is a visual cue, but we don't mm-hmm. know what that visual cue is. We just know that there's mm-hmm. something lurking. There's so many so much wonderful stuff in the book here. They were never going to get in there. Now, what they've done is this is very common in movies, actually. Like rather than in the book, Lucy sees a more beautiful version of herself. The thing is, beauty is so subjective. So here, they've dodged that problem by saying, "Well, it doesn't matter if you find Lucy or Susan more beautiful. The point is that Lucy wants to be like her sister. So we know that Lucy finds Susan more beautiful. So, so, you, so, so they kind of dodge the problem of beauty being subjective." I think that transition, they do it here and they they will do it again in, later in the film, but the transition between actresses is so smooth yeah. that I never quite get 
I, I think know, there's no yeah. clear dividing line between actresses. It's Ass just lines, yeah. one blends into the next. I, I think this is really good. The other one I think looks a little cheesy. Um, so you have Aslan here in the book, of course, Lucy makes Aslan visible. And here you just have this whole dialogue scene between Lucy and Koryakin and Aslan. And here you just have Aslan crying out briefly and then never appears. And Lucy, despite hearing Aslan's voice, rips the page out anyway. Um, so just in general, Aslan's presence and power is watered down here, as but, it often is in these movies. in the Magician's book, she was going to say the one spell. Then she sees Aslan's face. Right. And then she turns the page and does another spell instead. Right. And then Aslan... Tells her off for it, though. Tells her off for it later. And they, they don't have any of that here. So just in general, the Aslan is a pretty minor character, except for just a couple lines of dialogue that say he's important. But his presence isn't really felt the way it is in the book. There's, so, there's such great stuff in the book here that would be impossible, of course, to do in the movie, like uh, uh, the forgotten story. Lucy reads a uh, story mm. in the magician's book, and then, you know. I like this effect where the magician becomes visible. Slowly visible. I'm all, I always wonder, like, what was he doing there, though? He, was just, he wasn't yeah. even looking at her. That's a good point. But there's this great, great, such great stuff in the book, like where, um, you know, Lucy reads that story, and it says, like, if ever... From now on, when Lucy thinks of a good story, it's a story that reminds her of the forgotten story in the Magician's Book. And, of course, there's no way to do that in, 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 a, in, in a movie. But I just thought I'd at least mention it in the commentary. Now, the Duffers, they they look very fairy tale. Yep, and they look very fakey. Just my opinion. I'm not a fan of the hairstyles. Yeah. The it, beard's pretty nice on the Chief de- Duffer. definitely, again... I think ask fans of Narnia when you hear they're going to make the Chronicles of Narnia into movies and add them to make a list of most anticipated things. I would imagine duffel puds are probably in a lot of people's top five. Mm. Um, and Michael Apted actually complained about having them in the movie because they were so expensive. But he was saying, but, you know, it's one of the things you have to deliver on. Because even he knew, come on, you can't have a Voyage of the Dawn Treader movie that doesn't have the duffel puds. Um, the characterization of the duffel puds is, 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 is pretty good. I yeah. Think. Um, I always... I never imagined like actual human feet. I always imagined something else in the book, like some sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it. In the illustrations, are they wearing shoes? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's like having the actual human feet here where you see like the big toes and stuff. That really weirds me out. I find that really, really off-putting. But as far as the acting is concerned, I think all of these actors are doing a pretty good job. They're fine. As far as the duffers are concerned. Yeah, the the effects don't work here for me. They all look very, very uh, composited. Yeah. And all the backstory, of course. By the way, it's being, um, yeah, all all the backstory here of, you know, of the the duffel puds and how Koryakin is a fallen star who's kind of watches over them and he's frustrated about them, but he doesn't really hate them. And um, and kind of the metaphor Lewis is doing there, none of that is here. And let's just throw in... Calling duffel puds there. Uh, so here in this dialogue, it's going to be established. Invisibility can protect you from the mist. Um, that's the reason he made the duffel puds invisible was well, to protect it's them the from best the mist. Way to, it seemed the best way to protect them. At but least. I'm watching them. I know, but I'm, I'm, I'm watching the movie and I'm kind of like, well, so it seems like invisibility might be a handy thing to have in this story. Why can't I like that visual right there? Eh. It's, it's, this is all a little too much. I don't know. I, I like the, incongru- the incongru- incongruous stuff in the book of it's all kind of normal feeling when there's this magical element to it. But anyway, it's established. It's a sort of a minor thing, but it's established that invisibility can protect you from the mist. 
So, hey, Koryakin, could you tell us that in... Or Lucy knows the invisibility spell. She said it. Um, couldn't she pull that out again? Because they're about to go right into the mist anyway. Well, she had the visibility spell. That's true. Maybe the invisibility one is different. Maybe it only works Fair on enough. a few people at a time. A place where evil lurks. No, there is a magical map in the book. It's not That's quite true. this magical. It certainly isn't. And Caspian actually frames it on the wall. I don't think... Probably doesn't frame this one on the wall, I would imagine. But it would be very useful if they brought it with them. Uh-huh. Kind of Google Maps Street View is kind of what they've done with it here. Um, this is dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a cheesy exposition is what this is. This is the green mist is just evil, and it steals light from this world, and it's an evil thing that does evilly evil things. This is the threadiest thready thread in the history of threats. Um, it's, uh, I think you can tell, because there are there a lot of writers on this movie, and you can really tell that the final product is the result of a lot of compromises, and I think you kind of sense that in this scene where it's like, well, we can't say this about the mist, but we can say this, but we can say this, and so you end up with this very vague idea of what the mist is, and is it a person? Does it have an intelligence? I guess it does. But this... I was cracking up through a lot of this in theaters because the dialogue and the performance, you feel bad for Billy Brown who plays Corey Akin, um, trying to make this stuff work. <sighs> but it's our Council of All Around scene where we say, here's what we got to do. Maybe Lucy's already feeling guilty because, you know, she has that page already. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that, I'm sure that's what he's doing, right? Like, Corey Akin knows... And he's just going to let it happen, I guess. We've got our marching Ooh. orders here. Ooh, that's the Kubrick stare. We've got our marching orders here. We've got, uh, in the book, Reaper Cheap says, we did not set sail to find things useful, but to seek honor and adventure. It's, that's the dialogue scene where he says, no, you're here to find things useful. You're here to find the seven swords. You're don't- here to save the world. Exactly. You're here to uh, don't. And throughout the the movie, we'll see when they find the seven lords. They seldom express a lot of concern for the lords. They immediately say, "The sword. Where's the sword? Get the, get the sword." Here's the the journal again, and it's also some early signs of connecting all the islands together to feel more cohesive, rather than the episodic narrative of the book, where they, they they've established the they're, they're looking for the blue star, which of course is uh, a Romandu's daughter, or is. They name her in the movie uh, Liliandel, which um, Gresham Gresham came up with that, came up yeah. with that name, and it's more clever than I realized. Uh, Lilies, it's Lilies, but also uh, Lillian is close to Rillian, ah, and it's spelled almost the same way. I actually never thought of that until right now. Rillian, of course, being her, her son, son later. Yeah. Cool shot there of Reaper Chief on the prow. Oh yeah, I would have loved to have I seen that it. with a sunset behind it or something though. But I do love the visual of Reepicheep <laughs> saying, this is awesome, sailing towards the east, which would have been really awesome if they had established how much Reepicheep wants to go to the world's end, which they haven't in this movie. What do you think about Edmund finding the concept of sea serpent? To, this concept of sea serpents really silly. I, I, I don't think that works. This is a fantastic country or fantastic world. So why wouldn't there be sea serpents? You know, he, he just seems... Like, this is just too incredible that sea serpents might exist. I think it's, to me, it's a thing that actually does make sense when you think about it, but I still doesn't sit right with me. Because it's sort of like, well, okay, that's just something in, that no one's ever seen in Narnia, and it, it is ridiculous in Narnia. 
but it still does seem weird. And by the way, he could be right in this movie because the sea serpent is just a conjuring of the Dark Island at the end. So maybe he's right. Maybe sea serpents are a totally ridiculous idea. But uh, I like how Drinian, he he kind of takes the point from Caspian, but he also is like, hey, you know, he, he gets his point in at the end. I think there's a, an interesting interaction there from from Drinian mm-hmm. and, and great acting. I think that, but it, it's an exception. The, the fact that the main thing they emphasize, the main, main reason they keep going in that scene is, well, we've got to save the MLG. We've got to save the world. There, there's no it's mention like, of... It's like, well, okay. Well, it, well, the main re- Yeah, there's other reasons they could have given. Like, the reason they give is, but, oh, what about the MLG's uh, mom? What, you're you're going to tell Rince that uh, we're turning back. Well, Which I like, think it's a bit... Uh, yeah, I think that's a bit of a weak reason there's other reasons they could have brought up like to give up the book they put up what about finding the lords what about finding the swords to save the world hello what about finding aslan's country and the world's end there's there's uh, there's a lot of other reasons so it's a week in there i guess my point is it's a weak reason to give up but it is you know but so i like that he he doesn't quite give up he's still he gets his last word in great i love lucy leaning into this light it's probably my favorite shot in the movie i love it and this lighting here is gorgeous, contrasting a lot of the really flat stuff the rest of the movie. This is such a cool, atmospheric, evocative shot here with that daylight streaming in right there. And I, I, lo- and I like the realization that, well, I guess, are we not on a ship anymore? Are we just, it's a little weird how everything is still all of a sudden? Mm. I, I like that, how incongruous all that is. And again, this transition, it, it may not necessarily look the best, but again, it's like, where... Where does the transition actually Where did the transition through? occur? Like, I was yeah. looking... At Lucy, and now I'm looking at Susan. How right. how did mm-hmm. that happen? Yeah. So this is a whole thing, which eventually, if we would refer to the scene in the in the Narnie Web forum, we would talk about Lucy's "It's a Wonderful Life" moment, getting to see uh, what her life would have been. Um, and I think our perception at the time was that it was just there to figure out a way to get more of Anna Popowell, and of course William Mosley's coming along shortly. Um, By the way, Anna Popowell does a pretty good job. Acting as Lucy, like there's never a point where I where I think, oh well, that's just an actress trying to be another actress trying to be. I mean, like I I just buy it. I just you know for as short as the scene is, I just yeah okay, that's that I, I take it. It's Lucy. And Scanner does a pretty good job here, being totally high. Hmm. <laughs> just I, I, I Scanner really weirds me out in this scene. This whole performance. Well, it's supposed to be a strange. I guess scene. it's supposed to be weird. So there you go. But it weirds me out in a way that I find hokey and cringy. Um, so yeah, they're sort of taking, this is sort of, uh, you know, the apex of Lucy's arc right here. And, and finally we're going to see Aslan. Uh. Um, it is a neat transition there. He walks into frame there. Um, and he's going to tell her, no, Lucy, you're important. You know, I know you think that you're lesser than your sister or whatever. I know you are having body image, image right now, but, um, you're important because you were the first one to discover Narnia. Don't forget that. That's why you're important. I think it's a pretty weak. Um, I don't know how comforted I would be like by that personally. I'm just saying. That's why she has value. Um, but yeah, this is this is I guess taken from a scene in the the sort of the magician's book scene in the book. Rasslin's kind of telling her off here, but with much cheesier dialogue and "Don't run from who you are," which I kind of feel like a lot of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, <laughs> especially with Eustace. Is about running from who you are, um, so that feels a uh, uh, pretty generic and out of character for me. It's a very generic moral to the story, mm-hmm. and 
you know something that you would expect Hollywood to come up with. Mm-hmm. I do like the fact that it was all a dream, though, because when I was watching it in the theater, it's like, what is going on? But the fact that, oh, Lucy just had a dream. Okay, I, then I forgive the movie for that if it was all I a dream. I guess I didn't think of that because obviously something magical was happening because it all started with her saying the magic, the, the magic spell from the page. So I, I kind of understood that this is some sort of a vision or something. Um, a little nod to Tumnus's fire there, I guess, from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Aslan in the fire there. Maybe. More green mist. Um, hmm. And we'll initially get, um, you know, this is the first mention, I think, of Caspian, a thing with his father, which is this, I guess, supposed to be this giant emotional moment at the end of the movie here. But this is the first time we even mention it. And also we get an idea that Edmund is still has nightmares about the White Witch. Still stuck on movie two. Um well, movie one more like, wouldn't you say? Because in movie two, that's true. He, he, he's he not tempted exactly by the witch at all. But Which, this, yeah, this is definitely. I it's totally. Uh, it, it undercuts a great moment for Edmund's character in the Prince Caspian movie, where he's not tempted by the witch and he actually stabs her back, and is the only one that's not taken in by the temptation. Although, I mean, if you had done something really that bad, wouldn't you have nightmares about it after the fact? But, regrets? but they're not playing out the guilt aspect of it. They're play- I think it's, yeah, supposed that's to, true. it's supposed to be part of Edmund feels he's tired of playing second fiddle, I guess. And the White Witch will make him a king if he takes her hand. Something will happen? It's but not that's clear later what, in the film. Yeah, but what's exact, what his temptation is is pretty unclear. Meanwhile, we have the combination island... Of Dragon yes. Isle and Death Goldwater water slash Deathwater, which uh-huh. I suppose makes sense because if you've got an island that can turn things into gold and you had a dragon that likes gold, then maybe the dragon is sure, collecting they, the gold. Yeah, and you could argue there's a connection. I love putting the, it in turning a around looking at you. Canyon? Yeah. And I, 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 I like that. It's a pretty cool island, too, I think. Although nothing like the book. Not at all. Exactly. And that's, to me, I, I, I think of all of the lush greenery on Dragon Isle. Mm-hmm. And uh, even even Deathwater looks fairly impressive if you take a look at what Lewis writes. Uh-huh. But uh, in this film, it's a generic barren rock. All right, I'll give you that. Um, but it has, it has just, caverns and just nice caves to, and it, But it feels like a real location, more or less, whereas so much this whole movie feels like a set because a lot of it is a set. Um Probably this is a set. Yes. Um, so down into Deathwater, um, there's, there's, they've played, this is much more of a detective story moment. There's actually a reference to that in the book where it says something like, an Edmund who had read a lot of detective mm-hmm. stories. Um, and they, do, uh, they don't take a lot of time to sort of let us take in the details here, be detectives along with the characters. They kind of feed us everything. They'll say, oh, he must have fallen into the water. And mm. they, they kind of go with everything very quickly here. But it's such a great moment in the book. It's so dark, though. It's hard to tell. I mean, exactly you, what it is. You can kind of, I mean, you can see it's a statue, but especially mm-hmm. at this point. But, you know, it's just so dark. Yeah, this is actually my favorite island in the book, I would say. It's definitely one of my Which favorite. Which one? Deathwater? De- 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 Deathwater, okay. sorry. Uh, I have to clarify. Um, and I, again, I th- I, Deathwater I, or Dragon Isle, not Deathwater <laughs> or Goldwater, because I do know that those are the same. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think the way they... 
again, I think if they underplayed the effect of the things turning into gold, it would be a little more true to the book. Whereas here, it's this magical. And also, all you have to do is like touch an object here and the, uh-huh. with the water, and the whole thing becomes gold. Which, which it is, seems which is not like in the, book. in the book, whatever is submerged turns into gold. Well, it's just whatever. Like if you put, you know, just your arm in the water, your arm would turn into gold. Is it the vibe? Because remember, some drops get on Casp- on Edmund's boots or mm-hmm. something, and it's just the just the bits of the. Uh, there that are turned now, into gold. Now, what's particularly awkward about this scene is they just established that putting something in the water makes it turn to gold, and then they have to quickly explain why the sword didn't turn right, to gold. Right, right, Which, who cares? Let's say that this sword did turn into gold. You could Presumably, you could still put it on Aslan's that's table, and it would still work. I, I just thought that, of that. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. that They establish the rule, and they immediately break it. Um. <laughs> and cue the chimes. And cue the psychopath origin story kind of thing with Edmund coming up and his creepy looking up at camera. Well, okay. The island did sort of bewitch them in the book to a certain extent. It's, it's, or, at, or, at the, or at the very least, there was, a, there was a rivalry between Edmund and Caspian that was in the book. Absolutely. But and, and you get the sense. This that, seems odd. Yeah, you, you get the sense in the book that maybe there was some. There was there something that was influencing them, or was it just their natural greed, or was something influencing them? And and even like you know, and of course in the book they see Aslan, and it's unclear when they get back. Like, was that like a dream, or did or did Aslan, you know, do some kind of magic? Like that, Drinian says they all look a little bit witched when they got back, and it's a, it's just a really fuzzy part of the book. Um, and here Aslan is not in this scene at all it's lucy that's going to break up the fight here which she tries to do in the book but i don't know but if even, she's acting even i don't know if she's acting any better than the boys yeah are. in the book lucy seems taken in as well the way she's saying oh you're all acting like you know whatever um and it's this moment in the book where they see aslan and some of them thought he was as big as an elephant or something like that they disagreed later over how big he was and again throughout really all these movies but i'd say wardrobe and most especially this movie uh very um, almost all the time we see Aslan getting downgraded and uh, the kids being made the the real heroes of the story and Aslan's just kind of a background character who just sort of comes along every now and then and says very yes children very good well done encouraging words mm, encouraging words but now in this scene they really do play up the fact that Edmund is just fed up living at the scrubs home Mm -hmm. he deserves better to play in second fiddle and they're also you know playing at caspian you know i guess doubting his his kingship somehow or his 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 ability to be king or something Uh Uh, kind of odd it's probably worth noting that uh this is one of the sections of the movie where reaper chief just totally just all totally uh, disappears yeah you, you barely even notice um so, even though he's the heart of the book, uh, we just had our first Narnia poop joke, by the way. And here we have, hooray! Eustace discovering the tre- a canyon of gold. Which in this movie, they don't really establish that there's a dragon that has collected the gold. It's just right. a bunch of gold. There's this canyon. weird, there's this weird moment coming up where Eustace looks off camera and you hear a gra- a roar of some kind, and it mm-hmm. almost makes you wonder: Did they shoot the scene with? The, the other dragon who turns out to be the Lord Octesian or maybe the Octesian or maybe the maybe a dragon that ate Lord Octesian. We don't know for sure in the book. Maybe there is like a spring because this kind of looks like it might be a dried up creek right, bed. Right. So maybe there maybe someone just like had a bunch of random articles mm-hmm. 
in this creek, and then it dried up. Mm-hmm. No, I don't. I don't even buy it. <laughs> but somebody's been here before. Yes. Uh, so Eustace, I'm totally fine. Him not caring about the safety of the Lord, just saying. I'm a little. I think it's it stretches plausibility that he wouldn't be totally grossed out and freaked out by the sight of uh, the skeleton. Um, but uh, there's so much wonderful stuff in the book. This is really the best part of the book. I think all, all the Dragon stuff Island, Dragon is, Island. Yes, that's uh, so much. The Definitely char- my favorite part of the book. The character stuff for Eustace, and when he becomes a dragon, and there's the bit about you know a, the, a dragon crying out as a sight and sound hardly to be imagined, and Eustace, this mm-hmm. exhilaration he feels when he becomes a dragon. And yes, I'm so powerful. I have everything I want, but I'll get what they want, but they don't always like it. And then Eustace realizes how isolated he is from everybody else. And mm-hmm. he actually doesn't want that anymore. No. And he's become, he now looks like on the outside what he's always been on the inside. And he realizes that, has this moment of despair on this island. And we really, we really don't get that much at all in the movie. No. And a, and a lot of that is internal dialogue. You would have to figure out a way to dramatize, I understand. Um, but it w- would have been nice to at least try. To me, my favorite scene from this book is Eustace and Edmund talking after oh, Eustace is undragoned. Yep. And they'll try to do that later in the film because, of course, they stretch out Eustace, turn, Eustace being a dragon mm-hmm. to pretty much the whole rest of the film. Yeah. But but, but you're right. The, the, the moment of... Like that's again, that's one of the, the, it's a little moment, but something everyone always talks about is it's, of course, it's Edmund who says, you know, who has that conversation with Eustace after he's on dragon and says that you were, you were only an ass. I was a traitor. Um, is such a beautiful moment. And they really Mm -hmm. never can make the connection in the movie at all. The idea that Edmund was a traitor and Eustace hasn't been so great either. They, they never take advantage of that at all, which is such a tragedy. But we don't know that Eustace is a dragon yet. That's right. Uh, the uh, the mm-hmm. film has not revealed that to us yet. Mm-hmm. Which, what do you think about? What do you think about taking that approach that the audience doesn't really know that this dragon is Eustace? It's kind of seeing things right. from from the other's perspective, rather. Which I suppose the book does to a certain extent, but, but yeah, but, it, but, but the it, audience already, the reader it. already knows that yeah. the dragon is Eustace. In the book, we're in on it, and you know, Eustace tries to get their attention, and uh, you know, and starts crying, and they slowly work out uh, that it's Eustace. This is kind of heartbreaking moment. Um, whereas, yeah, here we, we we don't know, and I guess you could argue that's very dramatic, and I, I think there's something to be said for oh, they're building suspense, they're uh, you know, building up build, building up to something, and that's. Whereas the rest of the movie, they just kind of plow through it. Um, but uh, it, it's just such a shame they lose so much of that character development in the book that I just talked about of Eustace's, reali- of Eustace's mm-hmm. despair of realizing what he is. And mm-hmm. the despair on Dragon Island of realizing that I guess I'm just going to be stuck here forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Aslan comes and bails him out at, at that, at, you know, just in time. We, we lose all of that. And instead, we have this action scene. of it's a cinematic. Kicking- which means com- which just means commercial. Whenever they say it's uncinematic, they just mean it wouldn't be the sexiest thing in trailers. That's all they mean. It doesn't mean it can't work. This shot here. No, but, but I'm saying this is so cinematic. Right. Okay, sorry, go ahead. But just the shot where it shows the dragon's reflection, and it's a cool shot. And then it pans up to this very happy cartoon-looking dragon. Um, I would have loved to have seen the design of the dragon be genuinely terrifying. This fire-breathing monster. Here it looks too cute, I think, what they've done with the dragon. Um, I guess I like some of the character stuff here. Maybe you don't really realize this until, you know, in retrospect. But I like the idea of Eustace 
he's just, well, I'll just go up and tell him or whatever. And he's like <laughs> breaking the ship in the process. He doesn't know his own strength. He doesn't really know how to control his fire, I guess. At least in retrospect, that's a bit of character is a bit of characterization animation that's kind of fun. But this is absolutely what Reba Cheek would do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll climb the mast and stab him in the hand. Mm-hmm. Which is why the sea serpent <laughs> battle is such a contrast in the book of don't fight, push, push. which we never get. Of course, that the, the whole this movie is all about don't push, fight. Yes, that's the <laughs> problem with the film. That, that, that should be the tagline. That should have been on the poster. Don't push, fight. <laughs> oh boy! And here's this giant dragon flying around that Haspi doesn't notice until he's right there. Well, you don't know how stealthy dragons are. That's true. I'll give you that. I don't actually know how stealthy dragons are. And for some reason, Eustace flies out to the ship and then turns around. I guess he's. Okay. I guess he's just showing. I don't know. I but, don't. I don't know what he's up to. But it's whole, a cinematic moment. Yeah. The, the, this whole thing. Like, it's the the book is small and sweet, and Lucy sees the tears, and slowly they put together. They debated afterwards who it was. You know, puts together that it's Eustace, and here is this giant epic. I am Eustace. Question, if you haven't read the you know, Eustace is a pretty weird name. If you haven't read the book, would you know that that was Eustace's name that's being written? Oh, wow, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're, I guess they're trying to allude to the point in the book where he tried to write out his story on the, on the beach, sand, I guess, yeah. and, and that didn't work out so but well. So there's that out. clumsy, yeah. I am Eustace, kind of written in fire. Yeah. Eh. Here's an, here's another example of something that is such an important part of the book. It's just an Easter egg for fans, and that's uh, the arm bracelet thing, which uh, remains on Eustace the entire time he's a dragon. And it's this constant reminder, even though there are positive aspects to being a dragon, he's able to be helpful. And, of course, he can fly and he can breathe fire, and there's amazing things about being a dragon. But make no mistake, remember why you're a dragon. It's because bre- breathing or thinking greedy dragonish thoughts, you became a dragon yourself. Never like It's this constant reminder that's gnawing at Eustace. And here, by the way, that's not the reason he becomes a dragon. Here they say it's, well, it's because, you know, all dragons' treasure is enchanted. Which makes you wonder why Caspian and Edmund didn't become dragons or something. Well, maybe the maybe well and in the movie, I mean. Maybe the the pool is not a, the drag part of the dragon's treasure. Well, but 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 Caspian and Edmund oh, all, you're also right. examine. Yeah, they the examine remains. the treasure. That's they find right. The Lord Octesian's remains. Mm. Um. So this. Uh, no, I'll just quickly say. Sure. This in 3D is pretty amazing when they're when they're looking at the stars because you will actually see Aslan's face in the stars in 3D. So if people at home want to pick, oh, whoa, in the stars you're talking about? Oh in yeah, the stars. I forgot about that. In the stars, you can actually see Aslan's face. So but I you, thought that was a very nice use of 3D. But you can't see it in 2D. But you can't. Uh, well, the, the viewers at home can see. Go back and take there. A look. So right oh, there. Oh yeah, that's totally there. There's Aslan's face, and it's much more apparent in 3D. By the right. way, this is my favorite scene. Uh, in the movie, just because it's a, uh, it's we finally get some character. Wait, moments. wait, 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 wait! You're talking you get, about the, the MLG talking to Lucy? No, this whole scene where we see, we have Ca- Caspian and Edmund, Ooh. and then we have Gale and Lucy, and then uh. we have uh, Eustace and Reaper Cheap. You just have to have faith about these things. I, I don't like the dialogue. I just like the fact <laughs> that they take a moment to actually let these characters be characters, you know? Fair enough. Even though it's very calculated why they put all this stuff into the film, at least we get a character moment, that, you know? 30 seconds for each pair of, <laughs> of protagonists. It is a moment of stopping and let's breathe for a moment. I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, this dialogue is between Gale and the MLG is some of the most cringeworthy stuff. It's definitely something that 
they're definitely going for the faith audience. It's definitely this is something that a non-religious person or entity or whatever. Or this is what a non-religious person thinks that religion is, <laughs> uh, or this is what they think will appeal to the faith crowd, and it's so uh, obvious and on the nose what they're doing. But this part's a little bit better. Yeah, this is an obviously I, I I would call it an iconic if you're a fan of Narnia, at least an iconic mm-hmm. moment from the book. The the image of the the small mouse, the small brave mouse comforting the terrified big dragon. Um, and yeah, this is a great bit of character here. Although, again, uh, for a lot of the only issue with it is that a lot of Reepetip just feels like he's sort of joking around, which he does here, even though um, yeah, I think he's genuinely trying to cheer him up. But he's, I mean, there's that great line where he says, I wager you didn't even believe in dragons until uh, you, I wager you did not even believe in dragons this morning, which I think mm-hmm. is a great line. Um, but just in general, his attitude here, it comes across as he's just being kind of silly and he's sort of joking around, which is maybe I should take. Since this is a pretty good scene, maybe I should be taking advantage of the rare chance to say some more positive things. But I would just appreciate Reepicheep in general being treated more seriously throughout the movie. He's often just comes across as just just too comical. But there's that great shot right there, Reepicheep talking to the dragon. And now we wake up and something magical will happen. Gale will discover the blue star. Which the blue star... So how come they couldn't see it? At, why, why is it they can see it in the daytime but not at nighttime? Maybe it's, well, because it's a magical star. There you go. Because it's magic. Doesn't have, doesn't have to make sense. I mean, maybe maybe she was the plot on the no, island. <laughs> she was on the island all night, and then she rose to the sky right. that morning, maybe. There you go. And everything I talked about with one of the things that being dragoned does for Eustace is it increases his sense of isolation, which is mm-hmm. he's been isolating himself the whole voyage because of how prideful he is and how much better he thinks he is than everybody else. And then all of a sudden he realizes what a terrible thing that is. And he wants to be with the others and he can't, they're going to be forced to leave him behind. But here we're going to see Eustace. It's just able to keep up by flying the entire time. So that sense of isolation isn't there so much. I do like these water women. Uh, Are they naiads? Is that what you would call them? I'm not sure I would call them that, but at the very least, there is sort of an allusion to, in the book, where Lucy actually does see a a person who lives in the water, a girl who lives in the water, a water girl, I'll call her. They immediately become best friends. And they immediately become best friends without saying a word. And so I think the fact that they keep bringing these water girls back is sort of an allusion to that, even though their function in the film is very different. And I would say the design is very different as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it it gets you appreciate some attempt at building suspense about what's to come, which they don't do that whole, whole, whole a lot of that in the movie. This is all different from the book. Um, there is that moment in the book where, oh, th- there's no wind and we're dying of thirst and what are we going to do? And there's a little, there's a nod to that here. But, you, you, of course, because Eustace gets dragged and undragged all on one island in the and the whole plot stops and we just focus on that for a, for a whole chapter. Mm. Um, but, yes, in the book, yes, Eustace is helpful to them. He brings them a log. He helps repair the ship, yada, yada. They take, it gives them fire, of course. And Lewis talks about, you know, the experience of being liked and liking other people was new to Eustace. So there's an element of that. But make no mistake, at the end of the day, being a dragon is a horrible, horrible curse that Eustace 
fears he will have to live with forever. And he has to confront the fact that I now look like on the outside, but I've really always been on the inside and I don't want to be that anymore. And here there's so much, well, we've got a dragon now. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> and, even, and even later in the movie, we'll see Reaper saying, you're a dragon. You're awesome. So it's just the, the emphasis and what being dragon means for you just as a character is, is, is very, very different in, in the movie. And now, Romandu's Island. Romandu's Island. Which we never meet Romandu. Which, which Jim Fan predicted in the podcast, uh, that they would do that. Um, and um, some decent atmosphere here of saying, ooh, this is kind of spooky. You wish they did a little bit more with finding the, the the three lords coming up. You wish they did just a little bit more, because that's such a creepy... Like, just built it up a little bit more. It's such a creepy discovery. I think it works. Yeah. I think it works just fine... It, with a with a just how they how they did that design place the actors in there mm-hmm. reaper chief is such a notable role in the scene in the book when i think it's his idea to stay like everyone else is going to go on the ship because they're creeped out by the food and the whole place smells of magic and stuff and reaper chief is saying i'm staying right here this is as great an adventure i've ever heard of and so then a few others like okay we'll stay too and they kind of find their places at the table where they can minimize the creepiness um there's so much there's so much great stuff here and so much build up and here they pretty much just get to the point even though i appreciate when Edmund shines the flashlight on there there's a jump scare there i appreciate <laughs> that and i do like when the i think it's the minotaur who's looking at the food mm-hmm. and Jordan's like like stop wait stop, wait <laughs> i thought that is pretty funny what do you think of the decision to keep their eyes open i guess it gets the, well, like gandalf i guess um, it gets the point across that there's an enchantment, I suppose. Uh-huh. It just seemed like they, 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 they wanted to say that they were asleep. It seems like it would be better to have their eyes closed. But I, I understand they're going for maximum creepiness. Um, and they and don't say mustard, please, which is probably why even make a voyage to the Dawn Treader movie. One of the most it, memorable lines in the book: <laughs> mustard, mustard, please. please. <laughs> mustard, please. <laughs> See, right there, that would have been a perfect point for him to wait, say mustard wait, please wait. hey he's saying something everybody listen maybe he's gonna tell us where the sword is mustard please <laughs> what a missed opportunity they're under a spell yes yes they are we get it uh, and, and you know that's a pretty good you know point it's the food well that's what you would naturally jump it's to. it's a stone knife they just said which now if you haven't read the book you won't know what that means exactly why why would they presume that there is a stone knife on aslan's table and why even have it in the movie at all it doesn't do anything ultimately like if you cut, cut those two seconds out of the movie it wouldn't change anything and why wouldn't they just naturally assume that this is aslan's table because i mean they're on Ramandu's island presumably uh-huh so yeah, kind of, kind of a classic example of tell, mm-hmm. don't show, right. which it should be show, don't tell, when a, as far as a movie philosophy is concerned. Orcs. No, not orcs. <laughs> it's Liliandil, which Lillian is the, the, the notion Dill. in the book, which that's another thing everyone always talks about is this cool idea that of Romandu being a star at rest and he, you know, it, it, eats a fireberry from you know, the end of the world every day and it makes him a little bit younger and then one day when he's as young as the child that was born yesterday he'll, he'll dance in the sky again it's this awesome awesome idea um that in, but instead in the in the movie star, pe- the, the stars just kind of blah 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 transform from people into stars back and forth i have to say from my personal opinion i i do kind of like the the design of of this star 
I, you know, I, that's probably an unpopular opinion. I also like the uh, dryads from Wardrobe, which is also an unpopular opinion. But I think it's in keeping with the stylistic choices that they've made so far in the the uh, it, series. It, in the film, maybe? I, I'd like to see a more su- a subtle... I'd like, I'd like to see a more subtle effect. I would um, say this, though. They... Oh, gosh, this right here. This seems to be... This trailer moment of... Uh, no! But I, uh, I would say this... this I'm with you, Lucy. The style seems to be a direct contradiction to the book because there's that brilliant line where Eustace says, in our world, a star is a flaming ball of gas. And Armandu replies, even in your world, that's not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Which is one of the great lines in the series. So that would lead one to presume that the stars of Narnia are people, as you see Liliandil here, not and they don't have like a gaseous form, mm-hmm. and so I think I think a lot of people were well, upset says, e- by that design. Even in your world, um, that there, so that that indicates they are are uh, a bowl of flaming gas burning billions of miles away, but they're just uh, conscious and they're people. Basically, I think is the difference. But yeah, Romandu, snip, snip, gone from the movie, um, and all the stuff about Aslan's table, and even the whole and the notion that they um, at, at this point. Here's what's interesting about this point. Um, they're about to inter- you know set up the third act here. What's interesting about this point is that in the book they have essentially achieved um, the main quest. Yeah, uh, or that they, they on they, paper anyway. Yeah, they, they they found all the lords. They haven't. Um, they have they have to go a little further to the world's end, of course, to. Um, uh, to to, uh, to wake them to awaken them yeah and they have to leave someone behind so they've tied you know, Aslan's country and uh, their quest together at that point. Um, ooh, that looks creepy. It's obviously evil. I forget where I was going with that actually. Um, maybe I'll get into that later. But oh, it's, it's different. It, it is definitely different. Here, here um, okay, so there's a little smile here. There's stuff in the yeah, there, there's there's great stuff in the book about um you know in, in my world you know there's the story of the the, the prince that had uh, kiss you know kiss the, the princess to he, dissolve the enchantment he, here it's the reverse and so we get a little nod here that they uh, their that relationship there, yeah. there might be something that might comes be, from that relationship later uh-huh. I don't know they might they might like get married or something have a real oh so this is the cheesiest shot of the whole movie right here <laughs> cheesiest our worst shot. nightmares. Our darkest wishes, and I love Gary Sweet's delivery here. Just pure, pure, pure evil. evil. Well, that's how he should have said it. So he just goes, pure evil. <laughs> so now we're getting to the Dark Island. The um, Dark Island. Or what we're going to refer to as the Dark Island, um, which they've made the climax of the movie. They've changed the order of the islands around. Hmm. Um, it's this moment of mystery in the oh, more cheesy stuff with the MLG. Uh, there's moment of mystery in the book where they. It's such an awesome idea. Here it is just smoke. It is just a mist. In the book, it's a darkness. It's just there's sunlight, and then a few feet in front of you. Now it's dark, and it's such an awesome idea. And I love the question of do we go into this or not. Mm. And Reba Cheap's the only one initially who's like, of course we have to go into this. This is fascinating. <laughs> Everyone else is like, no. And I love the idea of, you know, like the, the, going to the end of the world is simultaneously awe-inspiring and amazing and dangerous in the book. And here, the mystery here, I think, is definitely lost in the sense of, of ex- exploration isn't really here as much. So obviously, like exploring the world's end is not really a thing in, in, in the movie at all. <laughs> it's, it's all about finding the seven swords. So we have some... 
some uh, reconciliation of relationship between these two. Mm-hmm. And an, an echo of the passing swords thing that was a recurring image in the Prince Caspian movie. And now the in- inspirational speech. You are a dragon, to which means Eustace. you're awesome. Look which... at me. I'm just a mouse, but you're a dragon. <laughs> uh... I do think it's funny when Eustace tries to look at him and he has to go kind of cross-eyed. I do like that part. That is funny. Look at me when I'm talking to you. And he's like, okay, fine. (laughs) Takes a lot of effort, though. So good job, animators, for that. Yeah, It really was. uh, But even the practical question of, and I don't think I'm saying this just because uh, in the book, Lewis makes it very clear that, you know, like Eustace wouldn't be able to keep up by flying, or at least it's pretty obvious the way they talk about it. And here, I just don't buy that Eustace, I know it's a magical dragon, but he'd be able to just keep up by flying the entire way. And that's, and that adds to Eustace's sense of isolation in uh, the book that's not here in the movie. But the islands seem to be much closer together in the in the film. Well, everything seems close to, closer together and smaller in the movie, doesn't it? Um, you get the sense of the voyage is taking like a couple weeks here, I think, in the movie. Whereas in the book, you get the sense of definitely def- definitely many months at least uh, in the book here's our rousing speech to get Fernarnia into the movie and uh, yeah it doesn't seem to be all that awe inspiring but I think Ben Barnes t- takes a fair shot at it I, he, he seems to see he, he knows okay I know it's not a very good speech guys then he seems really surprised and everybody but oh, okay I guess I did do a good job here's my problem <laughs> with this everybody shouts for Narnia nobody shouts and for Aslan, which if you if you watch Prince Caspian carefully, uh-huh. you'll notice that's a thing. When Peter's at the night raid off, he says for Narnia at the end of the movie when he's when he's more in line with what An- what Aslan would want. He says for, he says for, for, for Narnia Aslan. and for Aslan. Yeah. So it seemed to me like that was a very conscious choice to do that because in the first movie it was for Narnia and for Aslan. Right. I just explained Prince Caspian. I would expect in Voyage of the Dawn Treader that they would continue that, but no, it's just for Narnia. In, in, in general, in this movie, they give Aslan lip service. It's like, okay, if you squint, you'll see, okay, fans, be quiet. We said, like, even then, just a moment before in the speech, Caspian says, think of Aslan, and that's supposed to appease us, I think. Um, why is What's the Green Mist doing here exactly? Why is it turning into Rince's wife? What's the temptation there? Um, I would like to know, what is... Like, what is Edmund being tempted to do exactly? I'm not exactly sure, but I will say that in the book, even in the book, the island does tempt you with with promising things, you know, with with good, you know, with, you know, what we would think be good things, but well, uh, it you, actually turns out to be not a, an island of dreams, but an island of in concept, nightmares. It's like, oh, the island is where your dreams come true, right? But even the, even the, even the uh, sailors were saying, like, well, I fancied that I would, you know, because, because they be said married to whoever dreams, yeah. if I went there. Yeah. And the witch is back. They, they, they shoehorned her into... Uh, both Caspian and Don Shredder. I remember the moment I found out that Tilda Swinton was back, and I just went, "No, I really thought this horse was dead." I think, I think, let's keep eating it. I think the fact that she's in this film feels worse than it is because she was in Prince Caspian, and I think the reason that she was in Prince Caspian, or excuse me, I think the the fact that she was in Prince Caspian you know, seems to be, mm-hmm. I don't know, it just seems to be like an open wound that that 
people are rubbing salt in by bringing her back again for yeah. this one. I didn't mind that she was in Caspian. Taken in isolation, I don't mind that she's in this film either, but it just seems to be a bit too much that she's only in two of the seven books, and so far they've put her in three of yeah. the three movies I, I, that Walden made. I don't like the back the backtracking for Edmund's character and just the Oh, I don't like that. And even just in general, can we move on from the White Witch, please? Uh, here's Bruce Spence playing Lord Roop, who years before this movie came out, I said he might be a good actor for, for Puddle Glum. He's actually the mouth of Sauron in The Lord of the Rings. And I saw him, I forget what I saw him in, where I said, he'd be a really good Puddle Glum. And, How does he do as Roop? Uh, he does okay. He does try to. There's that bit here where they show him a close-up of him, and his eyes are wide open, maybe as a nod to the book, where it says that... Um, uh, you know, like his eyes were open so wide you couldn't even see his eyelids. Right, right here, yeah. like his eyes are open so wide you couldn't even see his eyelids. But hey, you know, if you if you cast him as Puddle Glum, I don't think anybody would notice, especially if they're going to reboot it. But you definitely see, again, the whole, uh, they really don't seem particularly concerned about the lords. They, they see Lord Roop, the poor guy, how long has he been trapped there? And they say, look, his sword! And then Eustace, look, I know he's Eustace, um, but poor guy. Like, out of nowhere, this monstrous dragon just comes up and grabs him. Like, this guy, if he had any hope of a psychological recovery, forget it. I, th- I, think, I, th- I think it's gone after that. Oh, I forgot about our, our Ghostbusters uh, homage here of, uh, I guess we're going to see the Pillsbury Doughboy appearing shortly to take down the Dawn Treader of Edmund. Um, just don't think about anything. Don't think about anything. And then Edmund, of course, thinks of that. That definitely. And the moment he closed his eyes, I remember everyone in theaters and I watched it kind of chuckled because we immediately knew what had just happened. Um, I don't know if it's because we had all seen Ghostbusters. That's immediately what I thought of. And so... I do like this moment, though, with the serpent rising. Don't push! Fight! (laughs) The line should have been here. It's such a great moment in the book where Eustace shows his, because he's, at this point, Eustace has been undragoned, of course, and shows his bravery by totally pointlessly breaking Caspian's, you know, second best sword, but it's a thought that counts, and then um, wrapping wrapping itself around the ship, and then realizing, no, we have to get out of this not by fighting, by a different way. Um, and here, of course, it's exactly the opposite. So it's not like the book, but it is cinematic. It looks great. It looks great. The design of the sea serpent is okay. Uh, I like the. I wish they had like the big giant and eyes. Ouch! I do not like that part. That which part? That where where the serpent just chomps on Eustace there. That that's mm. just one of those moments. Ooh. Mm. I mean, I, I I like that. I don't like it though. We know there was a conflict, an internal conflict where. The writers wanted Eustace to redeem himself and li- wanted him to basically earn the right to be undragoned, is what they wanted. And <sighs> Michael Flaherty and Douglas, Michael Flaherty being the president of Walden Media, and Douglas Gresham in particular had to really fight back. And, they, they, and again, what we're seeing in the final version is a compromise where it does kind of seem like, oh, a, a little bit like not, it's not literally the reason why he gets undragoned, but there's a feeling of, Maybe in terms of character arc, okay, he's done enough. Now he can be undragoned. It's sort of subtly implied there. Um, but they were going to, I think in earlier versions, they wanted to more overtly imply that. So there's an albatross. For some reason. <laughs> hmm. I don't know why. It's like it's a little cameo. <laughs> and again, here, is there, maybe that's the best example of something that is this amazing moment in the book is just sort of an Easter egg for eagle-eyed fans. And it just doesn't work in the movie, per se. Yeah, it's just there, probably because we got to have the albatross. we got to have the albatross. 
fine. We'll put the albatross in for one for two shots. And courage, dear heart. Is, uh, they took that out of the of the movie as you know, well. It so would have been so much better if they just added that why, line. Why courage, not, dear heart. Why not have that? And why, why not, not make a moment where it's like, oh, Aslan is here. Why not do that? But the serpent is wrapping itself around the uh, ship. And some very PG fight scenes here where no one seems to be dying. But don't push fight. Yes. I forgot that Lucy uses Susan's bow. So one of the things, like, they're obviously they're massively overblowing um, this giant um, battle. And this is really the climax of the story. Whereas we're going to cut to the undragoning soon. And the undragoning is just a footnote in this. Kind of like Aslan's resurrection was in the mm. Battle of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where it's the battle gets all the emphasis, and oh, by the way, Aslan rose from the dead. So the, the placement, like in the book, the undragoning is there's nothing else going on in the story, and the mm-hmm. story indeed is at a halt. There's sort of there's this stalemate of what do we do? Like what do we do with our dragon? Like the whole story is on hold, and we get to focus on it for a chapter or two. And here it's just uh, the dragon, the undragoning is only important because it gives Eustace the chance to save the day. Not Aslan, by the way. Hmm. But but Aslan helps. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he says, well, well, yeah, I guess, well, if we rewind and pause, we'll see. Oh, yeah, he, I guess he did give him the seven, the seven swords, didn't he? There you go. Nice shot, Lucy, right in the eye. Well, Aslan also... Raise tele- yourself! Aslan will also teleport uh, Eustace to Ramandu's island. Right. So, so, he, I, I so that helps. There you go. There you go. He gives a little nudge every now and then, at least. The Undragoning. Uh, where to begin with all the ways this... Again, this is one of the most important, memorable moments in the entire series of not children's literature. The Undragoning of Eustace. Such a powerful character moment mm-hmm. uh, where it's Eustace narrates in retrospect. Now, this little scratching bit here, this is supposed to appease fans saying, look, Eustace is scratching himself trying to rip off his skin. Um, but he, and I guess he can't do it, so Aslan has to do it for him, which is the point of the book that Eustace, who this... this this total prideful know-it-all has to lie down and say, Aslan, you've got to do it for me. Um, so that little scratching there is, again, a little Easter egg for fans. Um, this, the fact that it, this critically important thing of Eustace having to lie down and having to take off the skins over and over, which I get is a very weird dreamlike image. It might be hard to do cinematically, but just an Easter egg here. Um, that you, If you haven't read the book, you won't know what's going on there. And then I'll quickly just say, I know later that Eustace is going to say, oh, it was very painful, but it was a good kind of pain. But you don't feel that at all. You see this very magical Beauty and the Beast kind of transition there. And the book talks about it was so, you know, the, it was so painful. He thought it had gone right into his heart. And it's this painful but ultimately wonderful process of being undragoned. And here it's just over in the blink of an eye so that we can get back to the battle. So the treating of the undragoning, the way it's, un, it's treated overall, is one of the most offensive moments to me as a fan mm, I think. sad and i mean that's just like why even make a void to the dawn treader movie if you don't have a cool way to do the undragoning that delivers on that that emotional and thematic power that it has in the book and even we, we already talked about how it's you know at it eustace relays it to edmund and how powerful that is they just don't do any of that here huh. but at least you know there's cool stuff here of edmund swinging around on a rope and stuff it's cinematic it's commercial. And now we're going to get, uh, and again, you can say all day long, well, Aslan had the, Aslan gave them the seven swords and Aslan teleported 
Eustace to the island so he could put the, the sword in there and presumably teleports him into the water instead of the ship yeah. <laughs> after this. Hmm. But you don't feel it. it, it you could art, you could, Because they have the lip service in there, it's like, okay, fans, shut up. Aslan's in here. But you don't feel that. When I'm watching this, I'm seeing uh, the characters be the real heroes. And what that does is it waters down Aslan as a character. He really doesn't have a powerful presence uh, in, in this movie. So the, the the seven swords, I guess we should say the eight swords, because after fight, literally having a sword fight with smoke here, um, <laughs> Rendon glows blue mm -hmm. and gets the island-destroying powers that Aslan imbued with the swords. It's just a little confusing to me. Maybe it was more. Maybe it was more interesting. I would. Be, it would be intriguing instead of or instead of confusing. Sorry, guys. All I do is complain. It's magical. That's. It's just magical. You're not supposed to think about those things. It's just magical. Magic doesn't have to make sense. That's what they're saying. At least. Uh, what? What? So, what is the temptation here? Edmund is being tempted to take the White Witch's hand, which presumably it's not actually the White Witch. It's just, uh, um, you know, a hologram of the White Witch. It's not actually her. No. Maybe. Maybe. There's, there's no reason to believe. Maybe we're thinking this. Maybe we are thinking about this all wrong. Maybe this actually is the White Witch that caused the, or it's the lady Dark the Island. Or it's the Lady of the Green Colonel. That's why she's green and why her eyes are green and why the smoke is green and she just looks like the White Witch. Because I don't think even these filmmakers would be silly enough to actually make the Witch and the Lady of the Green Colonel the same person. But whatever was going on, it's over. She's whatever gone it now. Was. The orcs were nearby, but they defeated them, fortunately. Here's your... I think this is a Jaws reference right here, sinking into the ocean and that little noise, which is from Duel. And our villain of the movie is defeated. And it's pretty clear, I think, that the spell is lifting here. Wouldn't you agree that that's what's going on here just visually? I think so. But fortunately, in case we haven't figured out, Lucy's going to clarify for us right here. <laughs> the spell is lifting, just in case we haven't figured it out. And now we're going to see all the people that... Um, the mist was imprisoning or whatever the mist was doing. So we kind of thought they were in danger. It turns out they were just hanging out. They were fine. Mm, no, they're... Well, I, I, I think they're in some sort of peril. I guess. It's unclear exactly what was going on there. It's still unclear exactly what's mm -hmm. going on. I guess they're yeah. all just in boats. There's a blue light. Oh, there's a movie was ahead of its time. The blue light shining into the sky. This is before Avengers. This is before Spider-Man 2. This is before all, every other movie did that, so I'll give them that. Um, in the... Um, so here... Oh, oh, this is the spy video of Gale jumping into the water here. This is uh, the moment we saw... It, it, uh, we saw them filming this, and it was actually a boy because her stunt double was a boy. And so we were confused, like, is it an MLB? What's going on here? Uh, and this is another big insult here. Um, the fact that the reason they want to go to Aslan's country is, well, we come this far. Whereas in the book, it's because, because it's Aslan's country. And, of course, I understand they tie it to the mission of the Seven Lords. But um, Caspian in the book says, it would break my heart not to take the Dawn Treader as close to the world's end as I can. And here it's like, well, we might as well check and see if it has a bathroom at least. Oh, this was a, sh a shock. Here they say, we we did it. I knew we would. It's like, well, Aslan doesn't get any credit. And, then, and Edmund says, wasn't just us though. You mean, and you think they're going to say Aslan. 
And then we cut to Eustace instead. And the point is to say, no, actually, Eustace, I guess Eustace saved the day. I guess it wasn't just us. And I, don't, and I guess Aslan teleported him there and dropped him in the water instead of on the ship. Eustace is a really good swimmer. He swam <laughs> all the way from Ramondu's Island. Here's another bit here. This is the idea of it being the water being sweet, which is one of the most evocative and important and awesome moments in the book. And here, I don't really think you're going to catch it unless you've read the book. And it's even a moment of comedy rather than this awe-inspire moment in the book. It's sort of a moment of comedy. Grippy Deep says, oh, the water is actually sweet. And I just kind of giggle and go, well, that's cute. And here we are. We finally made it to the world's end. And, well, literally, Edmund well, says, well, we've come, come this far. far. We might as well check out okay, Aslan's I, country I don't think while it's we're quite here. that bad. Uh, but compared to the book, where Definitely it's, compared to the book. But, but you know, it's like, well, we've come this far. I think he's kind of excited to go. Like, well, let's go check it out. Whereas in the book, it's this thing we built up to yeah. all along. And Reaper Cheap, it, 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 it's his whole life is going to culminate right here. And indeed, the whole book, I know the Seven Lords motivates it. But for me as a reader, it's like I'm just so excited to see what are they going to find at the world's end. And, and the all the wonderful things. that you know, They can't have it all in there. But all the wonderful things they see at the world's end, like the sea people and all this great stuff, just not here at all. So they give Eustace all this dialogue so that they can tell us what that scene with Aslan was about, I guess, or which, which, so they can appease the fans. Yeah, and it shows that they knew that all those things, all those important things about it being painful, for example, and that he couldn't do it himself, did not come across in the actual scene, so they had to follow it up with a dialogue scene to tell you what had happened, because they knew it hadn't come, didn't come through. So probably should have sent that for another draft. I do like this visual. The, the, Very the, good. The wave that never breaks. It looks pretty real. The effect is great. The concept is great. And you can see mountains beyond the wave, which I think uh-huh. is nice. I don't think I caught that on my first viewing. If you're watching this on Blu-ray or DVD, you're seeing that Aslan's shadow leads to nothing. Because in the original aspect ratio, you couldn't see Aslan's feet. So they had to put him in there. It's magical. <laughs> it's magical. No mistake. Um, he was invisible. The the visibility spell finally, finally worked. Finally kicked in. There you go. It, it just took. A, it was it was a Windows machine. It was just took a while to load there. Um, Ooh, there are the mountains. This is such a. And now we've now, we got his father. This whole thing is my father in your country. Okay. Um, that kind of like I I don't like why why would Caspian the Ninth be in Aslan's country? Because presumably this is obviously some. This is some. This is the their this world's afterlife or whatever or whatever. Um, it is. Well, I guess we don't know enough about Caspian's father here in the movies. All we get to get a, we get the sense he was a good guy, I suppose. Who Miraz killed. So maybe that maybe that is fair as far as we know in the movie. I I don't know, but it's such an underdeveloped. This is really. Caspian's going to go through pretty much a complete character arc in the next thirty seconds here, and he's going to explain the whole thing to the camera. We really haven't established this at all. But in the book, like we don't we don't really have any indication that Caspian the Ninth was this huge believer in old Narnia. The conqueror, actually, absolutely. As far as the book goes, absolutely. And here, there's this heartbreaking moment in the book where Caspian so badly wants to go to the world's end, and Aslan says no. no. Um, and then ultimately, that will be fulfilled at the end of the Silver Chair, though. Um, and here, he does. He just decides, you know, I don't want to go. I'm going to be a better king. Which would have been nice if there was more of a character arc about that instead of just saying it. Um, I mean, the the and even here, of Edmund saying, "Let's go home." They uh, they need us at home. Which where where in the movie did they learn that? You know, but here's the thing: out. 
here's the thing, though. It's because they didn't spend a lot of time on character moments. It's pretty easy to miss. But throughout this film, Caspian's had this thing about trying to oh, be a king like his father. Throughout the film, they've had this thing of Edmund feeling like he's not getting enough notoriety. And throughout the film, you know, Lucy had her character arc earlier on about you know wanting to be like Susan. And so it just doesn't resonate enough, and there's it, not enough they, time given to it. They do deliver on it, but because they don't spend enough time on it, a, it does fall flat. There's so much payoff and so much dialogue-driven payoff, and not enough setup. Um, here we're getting Reepicheep again, the emotional heart of this of the book of Reepicheep's yearning to go to the world's end. And mm-hmm. here there's this. Well, I guess you might as well, Reepicheep. I mean, you've earned it. You're really cool. Um, I don't think it, it doesn't have the resonance of the, the book at all. It's just like, well, you're here. Why not? And t- they've taken out the whole bit of Reepicheep also doing it in order to awaken the seven lords. Um, little moment from the book here of Lucy getting to kind of cuddle Reepicheep. Mm-hmm. It's nice they have that in there, I guess. And I think it does kind of work. It catches you off guard a little bit. And the CGI interaction also works very well. And I think from here on, the movie starts to come back in line with the book. And it's actually, okay. some of the, a lot of this is actually okay, but it doesn't draw me to tears like the book does. It doesn't have that emotional power at all. Starting with, well, I guess we should talk about Reaper Cheap here. I don't buy Eustace crying here. I don't think their, their <laughs> relationship is quite that well-formed. Um, uh, and there's another moment coming up here where, again, it's another very important part of the book that's an Easter egg for fans is Reepicheep throwing his sword away. Mm-hmm. It feels just like an afterthought where in the book it's Reepicheep of all people throwing his sword away. Mm-hmm. Yes, because this is Reepicheep's true desire. This is re- this is really the adventure he's been longing for his whole life. Um, and the coracles is the coracles is there, by the way. Yeah, um, it's it, just kind of sitting there. In the book, they they find it at Burnt Island, I think it was. Um, Aslan just keeps it there, just in case here. the mouse comes. It's a good thing they didn't decide that Edmund was going to go on, huh? <laughs> it would, would have been really awkward. Well, there's another boat off screen for someone, for everyone else. Okay. Yeah, for anybody else who wants to go. There is. Uh, I, it really irks me that Lucy says tells Aslan here in a moment. This is our last time here, isn't it? Whereas the emotion, well, part of the emotional devastation of this scene in the book is, um, it's uh, they're surprised, or uh, that you know, um, not only are they are not going to able to go all the way to Aslan's country, um, but this is actually the time to leave. And then um, when Aslan says you will never come back to Narnia, they say, oh. Aslan! Double exclamation point, they say in the book, and it's this devastating, this is our last time here. And here they actually expect it. So it doesn't see, so I don't have that emo, that emotional reversal here. But they do have the iconic line of, there I have, there another, I have name, another name. Which was another thing that Michael Flaherty and Douglas Gresham had to fight for and had to sacrifice other things in order to get that line in there. But I think it doesn't have the emotional power here that it does in the book. No. Because in, but- the, in the book, again, they're... Ex, they're it's, they're shocked when they find out that they're never coming back, and it's devastating. But but there's this ray of hope. In your world, I'm there too. I have another name, and that's the whole reason you were brought mm-hmm. to Narnia. It really is so you can get to know me in your world as well. So um, I understand that uh, because of the faith audience and because of um, the, the religious subtext that Lewis is going for of saying that, you no, know, actually Aslan is Jesus in our world. They have to shoehorn it in, but they've 
um, they've missed the um, what makes it powerful as a story. They've missed what makes it such an emotional, powerful moment in the book. Instead, they just they've just copy pasted the same words, and credit them for doing that. I guess apparently it's the best thing that Michael Flaherty and Douglas Gresham should get. But they were surrounded by a lot of people that had other uh, other interests. But I do like that Lucy does go back and hugs Aslan last. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's to her, he's the most important thing about Narnia. Right. Sure. A little silver chair kind of set up here. But and f- as far as the movie go, I don't feel Aslan's important in this movie at all. I don't feel Lucy being so... And by the way, in the book they say, it's not Narnia, you know. It's, it's you. you. How could we live without seeing you? And in here, Aslan is such a minor part of, I would say compared to the book, the movies in general, but more, most especially The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Aslan is, is really barely there at all. He's just sort of mentioned more than anything, anything else. And the transition back to England is much like the transition to narnia Mm -hmm. although i will say this is so cool when the water goes down and they're dry that's pretty awesome okay i guess i won't say it because you just said it (laughs) sorry (laughs) i thought you were i I thought you were gonna say something else i'm sorry 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 about that you can still say it if you want so i will say (laughs) go ahead and say it it's cool that this effect is awesome Mm -hmm. which presumably they just Ran, ran it backwards. Ran it backwards, I yeah. guess. But it doesn't look like it. Though. I don't get that vibe from watching it. So in this age of CGI, it's rare to have a moment of looking at something and saying, "But how did how they, they do? How that? did they do that?" And so that's that's really neat to see that Jill Poles dropped in for a visit, which doesn't make complete sense with the uh. book since they weren't friends before then. Uh, but that's the last really wrong thing with this movie. Yeah, the, yeah. The next sixty seconds here are pretty good. I like Eustace's voiceover. I, I love this part. I I, I like. Eustace setting the picture on the wall. We get a sense he was making fun of the picture before. He pulled it off the wall. Yep, and now he's going to put it back and treat it with respect. And that you, you will, and Will Poulter's performance here is wonderfully subtle. And in a movie that's so you know bombastic and um, kind of overblown and colorful, it is it's surprising, isn't it, that it would end on this very kind of quiet, very. Uh, kind of performance-driven ending. And I, I, I do actually enjoy this last scene here. It's it's possibly the best scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, and you, you do get this feeling of being crestfallen that we're never going back to Narnia again. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of, you know, oh, and and the back bedroom in in Alberta's. Yeah, despite me having surprisingly little emotional investment in this movie, I felt just a little something here at the end there. And the door closes. And black. And now Pauline Baines uh, illustrations throughout this. Pauline Baines died three years, I believe. No, it was two years before this movie released. Um, So this is a little little wink well not wink what do you call it tribute 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 to pauline baines which is nice which is nice how do you feel about the song well it's um it's uh it's positive (laughs) (laughs) it's no i you know it it, there are a lot of good things you could say about the song um it's probably what you you would expect from watching a movie like this though you know it's i it's it says a lot and generic. No, nothing at all at the same time. It's generic, and uh, but I will say this: what's interesting about this is, depending on which country you watch this in, you heard a different singer, correct? Oh, uh, I don't know. Go on. 
Oh, that that's that, that would make sense, I guess. There were multiple different languages. recordings of this song, uh-huh. uh, so is was my understanding. That makes sense. All right, so it's been uh, ten years since first seeing this movie. My my first reaction, I went into the movie. Again, on some level, of course, you walk into the movie and know, look, this is my favorite book ever. It changed my life. There's no way the movie can live up to that. And that was my attitude towards the first two movies as well. And I walked out of the first two movies being happy that they existed and thought they were worthwhile adaptations, even if they weren't fantastic, even if they were far from perfect. And this one, um, I went into it um, with that, that same expectation and also being nervous about what I'd seen in trailers. So going into it with sort of lower expectations than I'd had before, but clinging to hope that some of the fans that had seen early screenings had said some positive things about it. So I went into it with these low expectations, but clinging to hope that maybe there's something here I haven't seen in the trailers. And almost from the very first frame, I just sensed there was something wrong. There was something missing. The heart is not here. Um, the passion's not here. And, um, and frankly, just the quality of filmmaking isn't, isn't, isn't there as well. And I kept clinging to hope through the whole movie that was going to get better. And when it didn't, at the end, I put, I just remember putting, burying my face in my hands and going, there's nothing else to redeem the movie. And I just, I, the, my, the main crime I still feel the movie commits is that it just doesn't really seem to care. It doesn't, like, I don't think that Andrew Adamson understood every aspect of the line to which the Norwich had been preached Caspian as source material, but I think he really enjoyed them. And here, Michael Apted came out, a lot of the quotes, we didn't, we, we didn't really hear a lot from him, but a lot of what we heard from him is just, well, you know, literally he says, all great adventure stories have to have a villain, and the book didn't have a villain. And kind of complaining about what the book was. And you sense that in the the movie, they're kind of fighting the book, rather than Caspian and Wardrobe, they're trying to do what they can to work with it and make a commercial movie out of it. Here, it felt like they were just sort of uh, fighting it. So um, there's this sense of apathy, not just about the book, definitely the book, but also just the film itself of just spit it out, it is what it is, and then you move on. It doesn't have the sense of event that the other ones have. So um, I've had time to do commentaries on this movie and the uh, that have been therapy. So I've... I, I, I've recovered from that massive disappointment and watching that feeling like that's something I love so much was just disrespected and sort of cast aside. Um, but um, it, it, it still hurts a little bit. And um, yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> I would say, you know, there's, there would be great, there is great disappointment. I had great disappointment at, how dissimilar this movie was from the book that it was based on. There are so many great moments from the book that are just missing from this film or done in a different way. So it's not satisfying. So I've, I definitely understand you there. Um, Having said that, the interesting thing is if you actually watch this as a film on its own, you know, and you try to divorce it from the book, it does work as a film, at least that I've come to to realize that it works better than, than we maybe first gave it credit for immediately after watching it, you know, when it first came out. Um, I have a lot of a lot of favor towards this film, perhaps undeserved favor, but I remember... Um, favor? I feel like you've been complaining as much as me throughout this commentary. 
True, true. But again, we're we're comparing the book to the film. Like what happened? I mean, I you okay. know, we're you know what what happened between you know the the what happened during the adaptation process. Uh-huh. So you know, from that angle, yes. Is it different from the book? It's very different from the book. But if you and I shouldn't have to say this, we, we shouldn't be talking about. Well, it's not like the book. But if you if if you judge yeah. it on its own merits, then it's pretty okay. I shouldn't be having that conversation, but I am, and so that's kind of where I where I stand on this. Is you know, it, it does work as a film. It doesn't work as well as the first two films in the series. And that's another thing. But I, it works. That's another thing I would say though is that. Yeah, as a standalone film, it's not the complete dumpster fire I thought it was the first time around. I'd say, okay, it's at least it's a mediocre movie, which is better than I thought it was initially. But I would just say, even as a follow up to the first two movies, it's a disappointment. And the sense of this being in, this movie being an event, and the sense of kind of a apathy about the story, and the sense it feels so. I guess I would say it feels so disposable compared to the other two movies. So I would just say, as a standalone movie, as a follow-up to the first two movies, even apart from the books, I still say it's a disappointment. But I do enjoy it. I will say that. I mean, despite everything, I mean, nobody can nitpick like a fan, but despite all of the film's faults or deviations from the book, I can just sit and watch the movie and just enjoy it. And it does have some fantastic visuals Mm. Which I appreciate some. I, I appreciate some of the, some visuals in this film. Uh, so for me, I have a lot of favor towards it. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I did follow the film uh, on the forums and whatnot, and whatnot to mm-hmm. see, you know, and, and I enjoyed that process as well. Um, um, you had two films to enjoy that with before, but for me, Don Treader was my mm-hmm. first movie, kind of following from a fan perspective that right. way on a forum. And uh, so I have a lot of favor towards the film, and I do enjoy it. Well, either way, uh, like like the move, like the movies or hate them, it, the, the process of anticipating them and the hopes and dreams for them and all that drama, and then ultimately doing commentaries about them and talking about fans about what worked and what didn't. And often the process of doing that, you realize, oh, like you realize what you like about the book in the first place when you see another version of it. Um, that's always really fun. So this, this has, has been, been really fun. fun. I'll, maybe I'll give this movie another try in ten years, and we'll see. We'll see what I think about it then. Thanks for listening. 